0: Hello and welcome to the Real Food Whole Health Podcast, where it's all about real food and holistic living in the real world with your host, nutritional therapist, Amy Love. And please note our disclaimer, all information and content in this podcast is for general information only and not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Thanks for tuning in to the Real Food Whole Health Podcast. Today we have Tina Johnson, a nutritional therapist from Optimal Health Nutritional Therapy and Optimal Health Kitchen. Tina, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. So um, I've kind of been watching what you've been doing on Facebook and um, you've sort of been teasing me with all these amazing pictures of olives. (laughs) (laughs) I just see that you're getting like almost truckloads of olives and olives like what's going on what's
1: going on well i order olives from california every fall okay um, and i generally order about anywhere from 300 to 500 pounds of olives which i oh
0: spend. my gosh,
1: yeah right crazy um, And it usually takes me about 10 months to process most of them and i do a uh, lengthy process and fermentation of these olives and then i sell them and give them away to friends and stuff and You know, once I get your address as to where you'll be in the next few weeks, I'll send you a couple of jars so that you can enjoy them yourself. But, yes, it's a fantastic hobby. Uh, I've gone a little bit crazy with it, I guess you could say, based on my photos. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really a lot of fun, and um, it's a great food product. It's a nice, healthy fat to eat. And they're amazing on the Thanksgiving table, and I pull them out after work. It's a great snack, so I just love them. I'm totally in love with olives, enamored by them now.
0: That's so awesome. And I saw like all these different kinds coming in. Like, so you do a variety. It's not just one kind.
1: Exactly. I try to get as many uh, varieties as I can. And I've basically been experimenting. I've self-taught, I taught myself how to uh, do both a lye cure and a water cure and even a salt cure for some of these olives, depending on the type they are. Okay. And um, it's been a learning process. I've been doing it now for about five years. And I think I've perfected it. Pretty, pretty well at this point in time but it is, a, it is a lengthy process it's a lot of work but the mm-hmm. result is just phenomenal like any fermented food it's super healthy for you and you know such a treat to bring out no one ever expects you're going to pull out a jar of olives that you've made yourself so it's
0: no not at all cuz people are used to i mean these days like people are starting to talk about homemade ferments and and people are like starting to understand the difference between you know like the pickles and the sauerkraut that you would buy in the middle of the grocery store you know that are okay. done with vinegar and that kind of stuff and the the good stuff that's naturally fermented and cultured that's usually in the refrigerated section on the exterior, you know, aisles of the store. So people are kind of getting used to that, yep. but I don't think they're thinking about olives.
1: Exactly. Well, most of the olives that you buy in the grocery store have gone through a process, a lye process in which they basically strip the olipuric acid out of the, the tissue of the olive. Straight off the tree, the fruit from an olive tree is actually not edible. And so there's a huge process oh. that has to go through. If you were to pick an olive off of a tree and bite into it, you would taste that olipuric acid in your mouth for the next probably six weeks. It's the most nasty bitter taste in the world.
0: Oh, my gosh. Trust
1: me on this. Do not try this at home.
0: <laughs> Been there, done that, right? Right.
1: Um, but once you once you cure them and get rid of that olipuric acid, you've got the most buttery flavored uh, flesh of an olive left over that's full of good, healthy fats. And so, Right, right. Uh, there is a lengthy process to go through, but once you've done your own home fermented olives, I I kid you not, it will spoil you for store-bought olives any, any day.
0: That's amazing. And so tell me about the difference in the process. So you said lye process, salt cure, and there was another one. And water cure, yes. And water cure. Okay, tell me about that. How do you even know what to do?
1: Well, so... Um, I love olives. Basically, in one day I was, you know, sitting at home on a rainy Portland afternoon Googling (laughs) stuff. And I came up on these olives and thought, why couldn't I do my own olives? And so because at that point in time, I'd been uh, fermenting my own kombucha and doing my own sauerkraut. And olives kind of were the next progression for me. So I started researching organic farms in California in which I could buy olives from. And have them shipped to my home, and then I uh, found the UC Davis website that actually talks about how to home cure your own olives. And of course, I took it a step further and I ferment them for a few months in order to get the most flavor into the olive and the most nutritional uh, benefit of the fruit. Wow! Uh, let's start by lye cure. So lye, a lot of people have a you know the scary thought of lye. Lye is essentially drain cleaner, and it's mm-hmm. you know it's a heavy base, and it's it'll eat through your skin. Um, but I'm here to tell you that I've been using lye for five years, and I've never burned myself. And people who make salt, uh, soap, homemade soap all the time use lye. And it's, it's quite safe if you know what you're doing and, and uh, you know, you've researched how to use it. So basically, I soak the olives anywhere from 12 to 24 hours in a lye solution based mm-hmm. on a number of different factors. You know, if it's a drought year, there's different kinds of different amounts of lye I have to use. It's, it's a little complicated. There's a little bit of chemistry involved there. And then once I soak them, I rinse them and I continue to rinse them for about two to three weeks with daily water changes. So this is where it gets very labor intensive. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy. And then after that, I start to brine them in just heavy salt water. And I always use a good quality pink Himalayan sea salt so that all of the minerals are right back into that, into that product. You know, you've got to have all your minerals, right?
0: Exactly. And building in quality like along the way. That's what I love. Exactly. And then
1: once they've soaked for about two weeks in a salt brine, then I actually uh, bottle them either into Fido jars or into uh, mason jars, and I add flavorings. I add all sorts of great things like peppercorns and lemon and garlic and Mm. bay leaves and all sorts of – I do a variety of different flavorings just to really impart a nice flavor so that when you bite into that olive, not only are you getting the buttery fat flavor from the olive, but you also have all these wonderful flavors that are imparted into the olive flesh. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the Lycure. And that's, um, you know, that's a several-month process. It's a long process and, and very labor-intensive, but so worth it when that jar gets opened. Oh, wow. and, uh, and that's usually something that I reserve for a heavier, thick-skinned olive like a Cevelano or a Baruni okay that are much bigger, and so there's a variety of different olives you can use this for, but you can't use it on the real delicate type of olive. That type of olive, which is what I, uh, my favorite kind is the Lucay olive, which is a French olive from, uh, originally from the, the languedoc region of France,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I do get these from California. There's a farm in California that sells these, and it's a very awesome. delicate, very buttery flavored olive that is such a delicate flavor that it should only be preserved in water. And so basically, those will soak in water, and I change the water every three or four days, Mm -hmm. and it usually takes about six to eight to ten months, depending on the size of the olives, and this year, the olives were, they ripened so quickly because of the drought in California, Mm -hmm. so this is going to be a huge experiment this year to see whether the Luques, how long they'll take. They may take six months instead of the full ten months. I'm not really sure, so...
0: that's amazing and i mean it totally makes sense right that you'd have to vary your process based on the crops and based on, but i mean how intimate that is to know What's going on with the, I mean, it's kind of like wine, right? It's a very intimate process where you're, yes. um, yeah, working with the crop every year and getting the nuances of, you know, what was going on with the sunshine, what was going on with the rain, you know, and then that's going to come through in your final product. It's
1: very true. And this is, this is a product that is so tied to the earth. I mean, every, everything that's impacted in California right now with this drought is certainly going to impact the product. And while the fruit has been, it's been a beautiful year for the fruit. Next year is probably going to be a horrible year for the olive production because of not only the drought, but every other year the olive trees don't tend to produce as much.
0: Okay. okay. So uh,
1: this year I was kind of hoarding olives, you
0: know, knowing that. I was going to ask, did you do more this year knowing that? <laughs> That's actually, I did
1: because I know that next year is going to be much tougher. So, um, and I've got one more shipment that should be coming in the next couple of weeks. So oh, oh gosh. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> I've, got, I've got five gallon buckets lining my basement right now. full full of olives and I've got about uh 35 36 cases of jars full of olives right now sitting in my on my back porch and yeah my house looks a little bit crazy right about this time of year (laughs) But, uh,
0: but delicious
1: oh they're they're just phenomenal I can't wait I'm I'm dying to open a jar, knowing they're not yet ready, but I'm really, you know, itching to open one just to see, so.
0: Yeah, right. How are you developing? (laughs) I must test you out. So, okay, so we've talked about lye, and we've talked about water, so salt cured. I think I've had salt cured before, typically like a black olive, or maybe I'm even thinking of oil cure. Uh, Actually, well, and
1: you can do do both. I've never done an oil cure, and the reason for that is that um, if it's not done properly, I have read and I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I have read that botulism can happen with okay, okay. foods that are, are uh, preserved with oil. And so I've mm-hmm, tried mm-hmm. to avoid that. I'm not really into, uh, you know, using no. botulinum toxin in my practice, to be honest with you. Yeah. So <laughs>
0: No, that's not really my thing either. I mean, even though I would love the uh, the wrinkle reducer, right? <laughs> doesn't quite work that way when you get it from food. Yeah, it
1: doesn't work from an internal perspective.
0: <laughs> no. No.
1: So, um, but the salt cure is is basically with a black olive. You definitely want, and the only difference. Let me explain this. The only difference between a black olive and a green olive is how long it's left on the tree. Okay. So, okay. you know, that I can do a Sevilleano olive green with a cure and you have a one, this incredible flavor. And then I can do a Sevillano olive black in a salt cure and you've got a completely different product that you would never even guess was the exact same olive. So wow. an salt cure, once again, is at least, at least a 10 month cure. And I soak these things in salt and have to continually add more salt and, and allow the moisture to drain out. If you don't allow the moisture to drain out, they can uh, literally rot within the salt, wow. which doesn't make any sense to me because you would think the salt would cure it all.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so
1: it's a very, very messy process. <laughs> um, it's not my favorite process, which is why I do probably about 10 or 20 pounds a year as all. Okay, um, okay. And this year, uh, I'm still waiting to hear from the farmer as to when the, the fruit will be ripe enough to do that. And I have a feeling it'll be a uh, week, one week window in order to get this fruit. So I'm really keeping my eye out for that because I would like to get about 10 or 20 pounds of olives this year for just the salt cure.
0: Um, wow it, that's amazing and like you said like to be on top of it like a one-week window yeah. you've got to be ready to go right
1: right wow yeah and the luke olives for the water cure this year he had about a 10-day window and i luckily snuck in on that window and then he shut it down pretty quick so it's wow. uh, it's it's really an amazing it, it's kind of crazy it's not like just going out and grabbing a cabbage from your local farmer's market and making sauerkraut you know this is a much more involved process, but it's so rewarding. And in the few classes I've taught on this process, you know, people think I'm a little bit nuts, but when I, when they actually get a chance to sample the different varieties of olives and, you know, and then try to go to the olive bar at your local grocery store and sample those, there's nothing, there's not even close to any comparison between the two. There's such a fresh, um, different, it, it's so hard to describe the, the difference between these olives. They don't taste like anything you've ever had before.
0: Oh my, oh my gosh. That's amazing. Like I'm totally drooling. Like I can't wait to try them. <laughs> and I love again that you're building in quality at every step of the way because you're doing organic and then, um, you know, it's all done at home. You've got, um, the Himalayan pink salt, you know, and everything that you're using, all your spices, all that, all very, very fresh, yeah,
1: very fresh, very high quality, always organic. I don't want any pesticides, involved with this process at all. What I want to give people is a product that they can be safe to feed their family. You know, we have way too many food products on the market that are loaded with um, nothing but malnutrition in them. I mean, there's absolutely, you know, devoid of any nutritional content. And what I want to offer someone is not only an incredibly tasting olive, but something that you you can trust that you're feeding your body something pure and healthy that it can definitely Mm -hmm. benefit
0: from. I love, I love that. And so, I mean, that's sort of the goal with all fermented foods. But, I mean, like you said, this is really so different, and it's such a labor of love. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, I can't even imagine, like, a 10-month process, and you've really got to be on top of what's going on, because you don't want to lose your batch.
1: Exactly. And, you know, you said it was a very intimate pro. It, it really is an intimate process. My hands touch every single olive in this, in this process, you know, between – Water, you know, doing the water rinses on these olives, and I'm touching every piece of fruit to make sure that it, it doesn't get too soft, because sometimes the lye can make them, you know, over-ripen, or, mm-hmm. or uh, not really over-ripen, but, but can get too much into the flesh and then make that olive soft, and I don't want that to be the final product. And so it's a very intimate process. I have to really look at everything that I'm doing, and um, it's it's kind of mesmerizing. It's... it's um, I don't know really how to describe it, but I really get into the process of doing it, and I feel like I'm just do, making such an incredible product that it's um, it, it's just a lot of fun to spend all that time and effort and energy doing it. So
0: mm-hmm. well, and all that love goes into it, all that mindfulness and awesome. and attention. I mean, people. That's why artisanal products are so amazing because somebody somebody's hands and heart and everything were really in that exactly. in that process. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. That's amazing. I mean, that just sounds so cool. I can't wait to try it. And, um, and you make, like we talked about, the sauerkraut. And what else do you make? What other ferments do you do? I
1: do a lot of different ferments. Um, so at the beginning of the fall is kind of my busier year in my kitchen. I spend a lot of time doing things like garlic and honey, uh, mm-hmm. which is something that I use. Uh, I ferment, and I use that throughout the cold and flu season to help make sure that my body has what it needs to combat any viruses coming down the pike. Um, I do a lot of Moroccan lemons, which is basically lemons preserved in salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are like one of the most amazing things to put in any crockpot meal dish. to slice up some of those, and uh, really adds a lot, lot of flavor. And of course, some of my olives always, you know, picks up the flavor a bit too. Uh,
0: yeah, I make that sounds like a perfect combination. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I do.
1: Uh, I do a kimchi that's phenomenal, and the difference between my kimchi versus A typical Korean kimchi, Um, and for people who don't know the history behind things like kimchi and sauerkraut, just about every region in in this world, every country, every culture has their own fermented foods. And uh, the Koreans, there are a variety of different, um, boy, I'm, I'm losing the word here, but subtypes, for example, you know, different types of Koreans and stuff that different areas Uh, where the culture is slightly different. And the kimchi is a reflection of that slightly different culture. And so some places will add more fish sauce. Some places won't add fish sauce. Some places will just add different types of veggies. And so what I have done is develop my own kimchi, if you will, even though I definitely don't have a speck of Korean in my body. Uh, (laughs) And my kimchi, basically I, I ferment hot peppers, a variety of hot peppers, either ones I've grown in my garden or ones that I've picked up at the farmer's market. And I will ferment those for a week, and then I use those fermented hot peppers as the peppery part of the kimchi. Whereas a lot of recipes actually use a dry pepper rub, mm-hmm. you sprinkle into the cabbage. And I don't like that as much. I don't feel like it tastes as alive. I don't feel like it. It um, it's almost imparting too much of a heavy hot
0: flavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because some kimchi can be exceptionally spicy. Oh, too spicy, almost. In your
1: mouth. And I don't like that. I'm more into a mild, but I like the heat, but I want it to mild heat that doesn't, it doesn't stay on your tongue forever. By fermenting, what I've discovered in my own kitchen is that by fermenting the peppers first, you get the heat, but it doesn't stay on your tongue. Wow. Which I think is the ideal way to eat anything hot and spicy. So,
0: exactly, cuz you want that you want that sensation, you want that punch, you want that excitement to the taste buds, but that heat that yeah. that that lingers, yeah. that's really the unpleasant part. Exactly. I don't I don't want to have to drink
1: a half gallon of milk in order to get rid of that, heat, right. you know. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, so my kimchi is, is quite phenomenal, I think. I make it pretty mild for uh, – I have some friends that I make it for quite frequently, and I, I make it pretty mild for them, and they just love it.
0: Oh, well. And
1: uh, I'll have it every morning with my eggs. I put a couple of tablespoons of kimchi with my eggs and eat that every morning, and it's great on a grass-fed burger mm-hmm. uh, just to, you know, kick it up a notch. And uh, it's it's a fantastic food. So I think next to my olives, my kimchi is probably the, uh, the next amazing – product that that i make in this kitchen and then of course my kombucha is always brewing 24 7 in this household beautiful. And, uh, my friends know directly where to go you know and they grab a glass open the spigot and have a
0: fresh batch of kombucha every time so, do you have a continuous brew system is that how you have it set up i do i have a yeah. two and
1: a half gallon continuous brew and um Yeah, it's always going, I tend to pull off half of it and bottle it because I do, uh, uh, I call my winter blend in which I add some elderberries Mm. and some rose hips um, and some ginger. And so once again, I'm getting some of those herbs that really help combat uh, the cold and flu season. Yeah, Not that I like to call that a season. I think that's the biggest.
0: I know. I totally agree with you. But
1: for most of your listeners, they'll understand what I'm talking about here. Um, but yeah, for cold and flu viruses coming down the pike, a a great glass of kombucha with some of these elderberries in it, such a great flavor and it has, imparts a beautiful color. And so
0: that's really amazing. And so like, um, a lot of people do, you know, elderberry syrup and that kind of thing. In fact, we did a podcast with, um, Emily from recipes to nourish and she talked us through making, um, our own elderberry syrup, but, um, you know, are you, you're just putting dried or fresh kombucha in the kombucha? I do. I do a combination of both depending on what time of year. I do make okay. elderberry syrup myself
1: as well. I think that's a great mm-hmm. punch to have.
0: Uh, oh, yeah. If you
1: need it. Uh, but but what I do is I take some dried elderberries. And I have a friend who has an elderberry tree that she grows and gives me uh, elderberries every year that are frozen. And so sometimes I'll put the frozen ones in if I feel I want a little extra punch. Um, and, uh, yeah, just put them, put them in there and let it. Do a secondary ferment for about 12 to 24 to 48 hours. It just depends on how much of a kick and the vinegary essence you like in your kombucha. Mm -hmm. And it imparts this beautiful smell or this beautiful flavor and this beautiful color to the kombucha. And, um, you know, mixing a little kombucha with uh, with, with some gaseous water at a dinner party is such a nice treat for those people that don't drink wine. Yes. And, um, and it just has a festive appearance to it. And so it's it's always a big hit at my house. So
0: That's awesome. I love that. That's a really great idea because I think a lot of people get caught up on, oh, you have to use juice to, to flavor it or you have to, you know, it's this really um, hard process or whatever. And it's like you could just add like a little bit of dried elderberry, like you said, the ginger and the rose hips. That's a great idea because you're getting that vitamin C. Exactly. And, um so, yeah, I can see why that's a wonderful winter blend. That's amazing. And, you know, we, we talked with – um we had another podcast where we talked with Hannah Crumb um, from Kombucha Camp, and she talked to us about, you know, setting up continuous brew and, like, all that kind of stuff. And it's really great because you get not only that the fresh, young kombucha that, you know, is more palatable because as it ferments longer, it's going to become more vinegary. Yeah. But because it's in there with the older stuff that is a little more vinegary – All of these different acids have have formed in that time, those beneficial acids. Um, And some of those take, you know, 30, 60 days to form. So you're getting a nice blend that's palatable, but the most health benefit that you can get out of it. That is so
1: true. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Hannah Crumb because I I took a class here in Portland to learn how to make kombucha about, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago. And my kombucha never tasted quite right. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up calling her. I found her website and I called her and she said, well, let me send you a SCOBY and see if that, if that changes things. And so I changed up my tea a bit, got one of her scobies, And now my kombucha ever since has just been phenomenal. And I teach a lot of classes in continuous brew kombucha and give away SCOBYs like crazy, because in fact, at this point in time, I think my SCOBY is four inches thick. So it's oh <laughs> definitely in need of, uh, <laughs> of being pared down a bit. Um, But yeah, she's got a phenomenal website, and I always uh, encourage people if they have any issues with their kombucha to check out her website because she really, really knows her stuff, and she really got me on the proper track with my kombucha, and it's just phenomenal now. I love it.
0: That's, that's awesome. And you know, I mean, I I totally agree with you. And I think, I mean, she's called the Kombucha Mama okay. and uh I totally think that that is a great moniker for her because she really does know her stuff and she really cares. You know, she's always said that even if people didn't start brewing with her scoby and her equipment and whatever call and you know, ask questions and things like that just like you did and um and she'll get you going on the right track and we actually used her scoby um, to start our kombucha as well. And, you know, I think I brewed for three to four, actually probably five or six years with that, um, with that culture with absolutely no problems. I mean, it was perfect every time. Yes.
1: I have not had any issues with my, with my kombucha. And everyone that I've (laughs) given a SCOBY to has had great results. So I'm not sure what she does, but her SCOBYs are literally the best, the best quality. And, um, mine grow like crazy. And I keep have it in a pretty cool area of my home. So even without the temperature being there, it tends to grow and just keep producing some phenomenal kombucha. So I'm, I'm very pleased with everything that I've ever gotten from her from her website.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I love kombucha so much, and um, I do kombucha and I do water kefir, and um, I haven't really, you know, like my real foodie confession. How confession has always been, I don't usually make my own ferments. Like the the water kefir and the kombucha I do, um, and I've made my own pickles, and I've I've done a little bit of everything just so I knew how to do it right. because I felt like that was really important. So making my own sauerkraut, making my own kimchi, like I wanted to know how to do it right. so that i could um but that was kind of one thing that i've always sort of purchased from little boutique companies doing it the right way um because it took something off my plate
1: right, exactly and i think yeah that's what's so great about fermented foods coming to the forefront of uh, you know the, the conventional society here is that it used to be you know the hippies in their backyards were making this crazy stuff and now it's out in the forefront and here in portland there are probably about 20 different companies that make it that you can buy it locally, which is great. And I'm starting to see around the around the country that there's a lot more companies producing it as well.
0: Yes, the, the it's region, really growing. It
1: truly is growing. So it's great for those busy moms out there that don't have time uh, in their schedule to make this. I like to make my own because I know exactly what goes into it. Um, yeah. I can control what type of salt I use, so I'm making sure I get all of the beneficial minerals in it, because minerals are something that I know that my body needs more of. Um, and so I like to do it because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge foodie. I, if if I have any spare time, I'm usually in my kitchen making something. And so for me, that's that's like therapy. And um, yeah. <clears throat> making ferments is a, a great way for me to just get in there and, and make some food. And I do often share these with my clients. My nutritional therapy clients uh, have a tendency to buy my ferments because they know that they're safe they generally have a good response to them, um, you know, so it's kind of a nice little side part of my business as well. Uh,
0: yeah, I think that's really awesome. And, and you know, having those resources available, um, you know, as a client working with a nutritional therapist, like exactly like you said, they know it's safe and um, and there's not going to be anything kind of hidden in there that, that might be not working for them.
1: Exactly. Very, very important to know everything that you're eating Uh, I think, you know, we just live in a very toxic society from a a food perspective. There's so many products out there that are just not safe. So, uh, you know, fermented foods you can't really go wrong with if you're properly fermented. You know, so great, such great amounts of vitamin C and they help your gut to, uh, you know, to break down uh, food into the B vitamins that you truly need. And uh, it's such a, a fantastic food product all the way around. And I have to tell you this story because I was, I was thinking about you the other day. I, I went to a new hairdresser a couple a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I happened to have a little bit of a cold. And I sat down and I said, I, I'm sorry, I have a little bit of a cold, so you have to excuse me. And, you know, I might be blowing my nose a little bit. And he goes, he goes, Oh, you know what's really good for colds? He goes, have you ever tried sauerkraut? (laughs) (laughs) Dude, you're speaking my language here, you know?
0: I love it. Awesome. So, yes, it's definitely becoming more mainstream (laughs) now. You know, I've as we've been traveling around on Real Food Road Trip, we've gone to all these different um, cities, and you know, it's been different for me to go to different stylists and whatever. And I typically tend to pick a if I can't find a local organic salon that uses organic color, I'll go to an Aveda salon, um, and I just have them, you know, keep it off the scalp. And I know everything that I use, and it's nice because it's the same product everywhere in the country uh, with Aveda. Yeah. And so that's helped me um, be consistent. But anyway, as I've gone to these different salons, it is amazing um, because I'm always listening. You know, that's nutritional therapy way is you're always kind of listening. And any mention of real food or bone broth or kombucha or any of this, right, your little antenna go up. And um, so it is amazing the kind of things that I have heard. Um, around the country that I never would have heard before. You know, people talking about cooking with coconut oil and people talking about going back to real butter and, you know, drinking the kombucha and, you know, oh, you're sick, take some Ocilococcinum or, you know, any of these kind of things. It was like, that's amazing. It's so amazing. So true. And I
1: think, well, I think part of that, you know, I'm also a registered nurse and and Mm -hmm. I work in 40 hours a week in Western medicine. And, you know, until I can Somehow, change my lifestyle and figure out a way to make the nutritional therapy work for me um, better. I'd like to eventually leave my nursing job. But in the meantime, you know, I, I'm kind of in the realm of that. And I see so many frustrated people who aren't getting healed by medicine. And I think if anyone thinks they're going to get healed with Western medicine, they're sorely mistaken because Western medicine really has no uh, impact in healing the body. They can give you med- medication. And they can treat a symptom, but they really don't have any impact with healing. And I think the big reason for that is that, you know, Western medicine doctors do not study nutrition. They get mm-hmm. an average of anywhere from 4 to 12 hours of nutritional study in their entire medical school time. And it's just frustrating to me because everything in the body starts with nutrition. Yeah, so yes. if, if anyone is sick, they need to look at their diet. And uh, and you know, unfortunately, I can't talk to people at work that my work as a as a nurse because that's not an accepted uh, part of Western medicine. Right, uh, right. Which is very frustrating for me, I have to tell you.
0: But but I don't know how you do it. I'm not sure I could pull that off. It's really it's really
1: difficult, to be honest with you. But nonetheless, you know, we're out here as nutritional therapists, pioneering all this, or not pioneering, but we're just reiterating all of the knowledge that's out there as far as what is healthy for nutrition. And I am starting to see it everywhere I go as well. And that's such a bonus to me because all it takes is one person planting that seed and everyone else will run with it. And that's what I'm hoping um, is happening as, as with what you're doing, seeing all of this wonderful food that you post on your blog and everything. Uh, but hope hopefully you're talking to people about uh about nutrition everywhere you go as well and what what yeah, we yeah. do when we do this is we do plant that seed so that people will start to open their minds to a paradigm shift that you know the food products we see in the in the grocery store aren't contributing to our health they're contributing to our illness
0: yes.
1: and um Hopefully we can we can impart those changes that need to happen in this world, and I do see things changing too. So I'm glad to hear that it, that you are seeing it as well throughout the the country because we do need to really impact the health of our society.
0: We, we so do, and you know it's going to take all of us working together, and that's why I've always really loved um, working and um, connecting with my fellow nutritional therapists because. You know, I was talking to Jessica Bischoff, another NTP, about this the other day, and we were saying, like, how it's such a cooperative community. Um, It's not a competitive, you know, grasp being greedy community it's really all of us working together and sharing and you know a lot of times we're meeting up like when we were in Portland we got to meet up with you and we got to share good food and and community and you know sort of talk about like how are we going to get the word out how are we going to share with people because it really is going to take all of us um saying this and all the listeners and anybody that changes their lives anything that is like positively impacting you with your diet, with your natural living lifestyle. We have to share that Mm -hmm. Um, because it's kind of been lost, you know, it's for the past several generations that's been lost and um, we've got to get it back because I think it's so fundamentally important. And a lot of people when they're new to this, they kind of think like food. I mean, why would that really affect my health? And like now to me, that seems like such a crazy thought. But back in the day, I kind of thought the same thing. I'm like, well, I mean, I get it. Like, you don't want to eat junk food 24-7. Like, you know, you kind of knew that you would need some vegetables. You kind of knew that you know, a balanced diet, you know, the food pyramid, like I kind of knew a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, and especially during, you know, I mean, growing up in the in the 80s and 90s, like, you know, especially the 90s, it was all about fat phobia and Perfect. low fat this and that. Yeah. Right. So you knew to count your calories and you knew to um, look at the fat grams and, you know, make sure ooh, you weren't getting any of that saturated fat and all of those crazy things that, you know, have all Hopefully, everybody knows that that's out the window. Well, Um.
1: the sad thing about that is that one of the hospitals I used to work for still has on their website that margarine is better than butter. So we we still have a lot of work to do. And, you know, one of the things that really I I feel very fortunate to live in Portland, Oregon, where fresh grass-fed meat is available Uh, year round. And the reason I say that is one of the things that I specialize in my practice is SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And I see so many people with bacterial imbalances in their bodies. And if they just chose grass fed meat versus the meats that are available in the grocery store that are laden with antibiotics, you know, these meats are so grown with antibiotics that by the time you've eaten this meat for years and years and years, the gut bacteria in your body is completely out of whack. And of course, you and I know that m- much of uh, your mental health, as well as your overall health starts in with your immune system, which is all based in the gut. And if your gut bacteria mm-hmm. is messed up, your overall health will be messed up. And so that's one of my big pushes is uh, to talk to people about the meat that they eat, and you know, to try to avoid the antibiotics and the products that they're eating and, you know, just correcting the gut bacteria is so huge. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so big in the fermentation too, is that's a, a better way of getting good, healthy gut bacteria back into the body without having to resort to, you know, probiotics, uh, capsules if you don't want right, right. to. Right.
0: Right. But exactly because, because it's, You know, the power's right with you at that point because, you know, you're making the ferments in your kitchen or you're, you know, buying from a boutique company available at Whole Foods or any other kind of natural market or directly from them if they're in your area. Um, Because it's it's such a range, too. When you're doing the probiotic pill, you know, very often it's such a limited strain. There are some on the market that do have a, a nice array, but it's really so different than what naturally happens in fermented foods and i know that we could get into a discussion about native and and transient bacteria and all of this but just suffice it to say that you really need a mix um, of these fermented and cultured foods and probiotics you really need a mix of all of that because like you said we're living in such a toxic world and i think a lot of people don't realize that the antibiotics that are giving given to the animals Uh, do come through in the meat and and the other products like dairy products and um, eggs and I mean anything like that it really comes through it
1: It really does and it impacts our health in such great ways and then you combine those antibiotics that you get in your food along with any antibiotics that you need to combat an infection and you Mm -hmm. just such great gut bacteria that your body had and then of course you know we could go down the rabbit hole and talk about the glyphosate chemicals which are sprayed onto the grains about a week before they're harvested and are not right. in any way shape or form washed off those grains and a lot of the studies that I've been reading show that the increases in celiac disease and uh, gut inflammation with gluten intolerances and that type of thing are a direct result of the glyphosate that's sprayed onto onto these grains and so you know the way our current SAD diet that uh, the, the average American eats is pretty much setting everyone up to have a gut imbalance and poor gut health. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of my, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is getting the gut bacteria in the body uh, back to health. And unfortunately, I think our our foods out there just really set us up for failure. So spreading that word, getting it getting it out to people is so very important to, uh, to preach about this stuff and let them know that they do have They are responsible for their own health, and they do have the power to make their bodies healthy by their food choices.
0: Right. And it really is, I mean, even even if you're not, like, making everything yourself, and I think a lot of people, they hear real food, and they hear that a lot of us have gone to making everything ourselves, and they kind of go, oh, my gosh, like, I could never do that, because I remember I was sharing something one time, and I was like, oh, organic ketchup, and... You know, sometimes I'll make my own ketchup and sometimes I would buy it from a farm. I had an Amish farm that I could get it from and it was all made, you know, the nourishing traditions way and all this and um it was fabulous and I much prefer that to just like store bought organic ketchup at one time that's what I had and that's what I was referencing and somebody said, Oh, like I would have thought that you made absolutely everything <laughs> yourself and you didn't buy anything at the store and I'm like, Well wouldn't that be a lovely thing to be able to pull off? But honestly, um, with our busy lifestyles, you know, that's not always practical. And so there are a lot of things that you can do just by making the right choices. And a lot of that has to do with doing the research, understanding the difference, because like what you were just talking about, the glyphosate on grains, I don't think a lot of people have really heard about this. I mean, it was, Pretty eye-opening for me when I heard about it a couple years because years ago because I thought, um, whoa. I mean, because you would think who would ever do that and who would ever think that that's okay. So, guys, what we're talking about is like the wheat fields, okay, before they harvest the grain, like when it's ready to be harvested. Before they do this, and it's not very far in advance, um, they, days, yeah. In advance, they go and they spray glyphosate or Roundup or whatever, you know, glyphosate. They spray this on the crops and then harvest it. And like Tina was saying, this is not, it's not rinsed off. It's not um, somehow decontaminated. Like it's on there and then that's what is getting ground into flowers and that's what's getting made into bread. And this is like... When you're not buying, you know, organic or you're having this wheat just out at the, you know, you're going out for a burger and it's, you know, that bun, there's a really good chance that that was sprayed with glyphosate and you're ingesting that.
1: And what what's important for everyone to know is, well, what does glyphosate do? Well, glyphosate acts to uh, kill the bacteria in our body and the way it works on the plants as a wheat killer is it actually removes it inhibits mineral uptake for these plants. And so basically the plants that glyphosate is sprayed on nowadays don't have the mineral content in them that they used to. So not only are our bodies lacking in mineral content because we're eating these foods, but then once they're in our body, they inhibit the gut bacteria from actually um, staying alive because even our gut bacteria aren't able to process any of the minerals in our body um, as well as they just kill them off Uh, very similar to how an antibiotic kills them off and so Mm a couple of different processes working there and if you don't have minerals in your body you know you just really don't function well at all and it can lead to all sorts of uh, medical issues as well so
0: because it's really I mean minerals you know a lot of people are like oh vitamins minerals whatever it's kind of this under um, recognized and under celebrated vital part of our nutrition our, our minerals and Um, you know, they're catalysts for all these little reactions going on. And and it's like mineral deficiencies can show up in all different ways. It's not the, you know, necessarily the quote unquote traditional ways that it might show up, or it's just like, oh, I'm a little low on this mineral. Um, It can actually translate into some serious, you know, mental, degenerative, um, on and on and on, like diseases. I mean, really like anything across the board that we can think of. And, you know, I wanted to go back to one thing we were talking about with um with the the crops sprayed with the glyphosate already, you know, being low in minerals, you know, we have to think about the soil as well is already low in minerals. So say say that we, you know, think about a graph and we're at a hundred percent, okay? And so a hundred percent of that mineral content and you want to take um points off for the soil okay because the soil's already low in minerals it's been over farmed it's been sprayed with all of these things it's really really depleted and so we're already down at about 75 percent there okay so the, the crops grown in there can only have 75 percent of the minerals they would have maybe a hundred years ago exactly. and then you take any kind of hybridization or any kind of anything you know a lot of um crops have been hybridized or crossbred so that they're more vigorous or they're more um, a lot of things have been bred to be more sweet because we think that's more palatable um, in the modern diet you know but somehow to be better able to be grown not necessarily and very often not at all for their nutrition content so you have to say okay this isn't even like the old ancestral grain that we would have eaten if we were eating grains. You know, this isn't what we would have eaten. So we want to go down to about fifty percent. So it's gonna be about as fifty percent as it, you know, of the minerals that could have had, about half of that's gone. And then you have to say the glyphosate's on that and then, you know, that's gonna knock you down again, say twenty five percent. And then if it's not properly prepared, and by that I mean soured, soaked, yep. sprouted whatever, your body's not even going to be able to absorb the minerals that are there. So look at how we've gone from what it could have been down to what many people are getting every day.
1: Exactly. And I think that's why a lot of people adopt a paleo lifestyle, which tries to avoid grains
0: Mm -hmm. because it's
1: much healthier. And it's not, it's not that grains are unhealthy. It's that grains have become unhealthy because of what we've done to them through the years Mm -hmm. and, and how we're not processing them properly. And it's, it's a very frustrating proposition when you look at exactly how things are prepared. And, you know, it all goes back to if you can, and I'm very fortunate living where I live, but know your farmer. You know, there's there are a couple of grain farms in um, – yeah, well, there's one grain farm that I'm thinking about in Washington State, Bluebird Grain Farms, who actually do a lot to promote uh, their soil, and they tend to grow uh, some of the uh, – the more vintage strains, if you will, of grain so that they haven't been hybridized. And so if you're going, if you choose to eat grains in your diet, um, just make sure that they're properly prepared and they come from a source where you know they're not using all of these uh, chemicals that damage it and they're also not using a hybridized grain. Exactly. And um, the other thing I was going to say is for those people who are gardeners out there, I'm, I'm a home gardener and I use a lot of raised beds in my garden and twice a year I add bone meal and kelp meal and I add Epsom salts to my garden Mm -hmm. all during the growing season to help keep the mineral content in. And what I've noticed by doing that is I don't have to pull as many weeds because when your soil is healthy, the uh, soil microbes grow and they actually cut down on the weed production, which is pretty fascinating to me. And it makes for a much better Plants that you're growing a much better food product for yourself and you know if you're saving time weeding it's half the battle. When you have the it's, a, it's
0: a huge thing and you know race beds already are so wonderful for weed control and and the, that soil is so easy to pull the weeds out I mean it's lovely because you're not you know rototilling and you're not tearing up the ground and doing all that craziness and when we had the farm in New Hampshire we had huge gardens and I would do very much the same as what you're talking about with amending the soil and I loved putting Epsom salts in there it was so so great. I mean, to get that magnesium back in the soil was like, yay. Um, But I did notice the exact same thing you're talking about. I noticed healthier soil, I noticed less weeds. And you know, from a permaculture perspective, and and permaculture, again, um, is that I know we've talked about another podcast, but it's a holistic, uh, almost beyond organic way of looking at um, gardening and growing and, and managing your property, like it, you really take everything into consideration. And it's very cooperative uh, with nature, and it mimics the natural cycles. Um, so everything kind of feeds into everything else. It's an amazing um, concept and process, and I think it's definitely worth investigating if you haven't looked into it. But um from a permaculture perspective like we always would talk about what are the weeds telling you and so you could you know, there were people that in our area of New Hampshire that could come and look at your soil and not necessarily in the garden but you know your soil in on the property and say what was missing by what weeds were there because it was like whatever was coming up was like a sign of oh it's low in this or it's low in that you need to amend with this or the soil's too acidic or too alkaline it was fascinating That's
1: very true i i see that too here on my own property and it's amazing trying to you know trying to work with the amount of rain that i have or the the needles from my hemlock tree that make my soil so acidic and you know it's it's definitely you've got to look at what's going on around you and pay attention and listen to how the earth speaks to you because it truly does. And it's really fascinating once you understand it.
0: Absolutely. And so, I, you know, I'm always interested to find out how people kind of came to this lifestyle. And, you know, I mean, did you grow up with real food and, you know, and good nutrition or does that, is that something that you came to later in life? How did that happen for you?
1: You know, I, I thought that I grew up with, with good nutrition as a kid. I grew up on a farm, and we had horses and cows, and we raised all of our own produce in this huge garden, and we had an orchard. And I grew up uh, canning everything every summer. We would slave over the hot stove, canning peaches and doing all of this wonderful stuff. And I remember my grandmother uh, was super healthy, but her idea of health was every every time that uh, we went to California to visit my grandmother, she would serve us beet aspic out of a can. And I always thought, wow, you know, beet aspic salad, that was kind of grandma's way of, uh, you know, staying healthy. <laughs> and, I, and in hindsight now I can see where the nutrition was in that and where it wasn't. Right. Um, right. But so I felt like I grew up pretty healthy. We always had vegetables with every meal. Um, but in hindsight we, we ate the typical, you know, American diet that, in the 70s and 80s, when I grew up, was certainly much healthier than it is today. Mm -hmm. So um, I actually broke my back. I was walking down the street, and I slipped on a patch of ice and broke my back. Um, Oh Oh, my gosh. And after seeing five medical doctors who couldn't tell me why, I didn't want to hear, you need to have surgery. I wanted to hear, why did this happen so that I can prevent it from happening again? finally saw a naturopath, and she said, you have celiac disease. Wow, seriously? So we did the test, and it turned out I had gluten intolerance. But I went further, and I did the uh, genetic test that showed that I did have indeed have celiac disease. So um, that was my wake-up call. And interestingly enough, I'd found the Weston Price during this journey. About a year after breaking my back, I found the Weston Price information online and started following that, thinking that would help. But of course, I was still eating grains and I was still eating wheat. Only it was processed differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, So once I got the official diagnosis, I gave up the wheat and I eventually gave up the grains and my health has um, really come around since then. And so for me, it's been quite a long journey of investigating absolutely every corner of nutrition. Um, And that, I think, is truly where health lies. It starts with what you put on your plate. Uh, You know, there's a saying that what you put on your fork either can contribute to disease or contribute to health. And that's, that is truly it. And every mouthful I take, I understand whether or not I'm feeding my body or whether I'm possibly causing disease. And I, I personally choose to not cause disease. And so I eat a very, very healthy diet now. And I'm very grateful for my nutrition training and teaching me what that is. Um, And then, you know, my goal is to teach other people through my experiences so that they don't end up having to go down that rabbit hole that I had to go down in order to, to discover this stuff, you know. Remember, I was trained in Western medicine, and uh, for 25 years, I've believed everything that has been told me. You know, if you have a pill, if you have an ill, take this pill. I don't believe that right. anymore. I don't think I don't think pharmaceuticals are the answer to everything. I think our diet is the answer to everything. And so, so that's kind of my journey. It, it was a very long convoluted journey, uh, but I found the the Nutritional Therapy Association, and I. Uh, did my training through them. And I'm very grateful to have that opportunity. And now I continue with my educational process learning as much as I can about things like, uh, you know, hair tissue mineral analysis, analysis, because I think, uh, minerals are so very important to our bodies. And I'm, uh, I specialize in, uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth issues with our gut bacteria. And, um, I want to get out there and just tell the world, you know, that we, we have to change how we do things in order to stop this conundrum that we're seeing with ill health everywhere we go. And exactly.
0: I mean, it's almost become normalized. I mean, it's like everybody's sick now. So everybody thinks they're sort of okay. And, it's kind of bizarre because, you know, I mean, I'll have a client come to me and and they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't really have a lot going on. (laughs) But, you know, once we delve into it, it's like, okay, well, they've got a heartburn and they can't sleep and they have these mysterious aches and pains all over and they've gained a little weight and they're having trouble losing it because they've got some thyroid stuff and they're tired every afternoon and they need coffee and sugar to get through and, you know, on and on and on. And it's like all of those things don't fit into the realm of
1: health,
0: but it fits into, well, my sister and my brother and my dad and my cousin and my friend and my neighbor and all these people have the same stuff.
1: Exactly.
0: So, you know, isn't that normal? And it's not. And, you know, so many of us have... have normalized that because we see it everywhere we go. And um, it really, for me, I mean, because I was right there. I was totally there um, before I took my journey. I mean, I I think so many of us are because that's what we grow up in. And you just know so-and-so died of heart disease and -and so-and-so has cancer and um, diabetes and this and that. I mean, it's just like rampant. And so, but we have to go back and look at, you know, was this rampant? hundred 150 years ago it
1: wasn't no
0: it was not now
1: not this sick and you know one of the eye-opening things for me is that having worked in nursing for 20 years I used I, I used to work in the ER and I triaged a lot of patients and they would come in and I would I would ask them you know what are you here for what are your symptoms and what medications do you take and I started about 10 years ago to see a shift of 25 to 30 year olds, Starting to be on anywhere from five to twenty different medications. Huge eye opener for me, and I started to ask myself, what is going on, and why is this happening? Because if it used to be people were on five or six medications when they hit their mid seventies, they had something for high blood pressure, and maybe something because you know their heart wasn't working as well, and um, you know they took a daily aspirin every day, and you know this type of stuff. Now I'm seeing twenty five year olds that are on. 12 different medications because they have an autoimmune condition and they're on all of these medications to stop the body's autoimmune condition. And basically in an autoimmune condition, the body turns on itself and starts to target its own tissues as being, you know, not normal. And so they start attacking itself. And so that takes a lot of medication to correct that, but you can also correct that with diet. And so for me, it was a huge eye-opener. The more I started to learn about nutrition and see that you could impact health, including mental health, that you could impact all of this just by changing your diet, that you didn't need to be on 25, 30 different medications or even five medications for someone who's 18 years old. I mean, that just breaks my heart. I
0: remember it it breaks my heart too. I'm sitting here like what in the world? I mean, you know, I mean, we hear about it, but I mean, you're there, you're in the trenches like, and you have this really unique perspective of being able to see the change over time. And I think that is enormous because I mean, we know like just from our own experience, those of us that are, you know, thirties and forties or whatever, we know from our own experience of how things changed. Um, you know, in our lifetime with our own diet and like, you know, I mean, I know as a child of the 80s, it was like all about McDonald's and all about fast food and all, you know, I mean, it was a huge thing. Like everything was grab it and throw it in the microwave. I mean, I sort of, especially as a young, um, you know, just after college working, whatever, um, a young adult, I mean, most everything was like packaged or very close to you know I mean it was like oh yeah I cook well I would take jars spaghetti sauce and put it over boiled pasta it's like that's (laughs) and I would probably dress it up with uh with some spices you know because oh it's like that's not cooking and so many people think that that's cooking I mean I I know when I started getting into real food and I was going back through um through uh cookbooks and especially as I was doing food blogging, I would go through cookbooks and figure out, like, what do I want to convert and whatever. And I got to tell you, um, a lot of these so-called cookbooks are terrifying. It's like, take a can of this yes. and a jar of that yes. and mix it together in the microwave and then, voila, your food. And I'm like, no. That's not food. Yeah.
1: Well, there's there's a home garden TV show that I remember watching when I was uh, taking my breaks at at, uh, at work in the ER, and I, I don't have a television in my home, so I don't watch much TV, but there was this home garden TV show, and I can't remember the name of the, the blonde lady that uh, had the show, but it was something like 30-Minute Meals, and she would oh, open up her
0: <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> she would open up her pantry and pull out like 10 cans of something, open these cans and put them together and have this thirty minute meal that you can cook for your kids and they're all gonna love it. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, what are we doing to our society
0: if this is what we're Very watching? Exactly. You know, it's, Oh, it's, but she had a beautiful tablescape. <laughs> yes, yeah, she did. And a matching cocktail. Yes. You know, and everybody that's listening has to know who we're talking about. But okay. that <laughs> But it was always this, you know, it's like, why don't you spend a little less time and money on your tablescape and your cocktail and put it into the quality of your food? Because, oh, my goodness, I would watch that in horror as well. Because when I was so sick, I would lay on the couch and I was practically bedridden at 25. I was so, so sick. Yeah, I had to quit working. It was awful. Fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, migraines, like, it was a laundry list. It was four tight pages of symptoms. It was just horrendous. And I would lay on the couch and I would watch cooking shows and cause there's not much on in the middle of the day and I didn't want to watch talk shows. So I'd watch cooking shows and she was kind of in between, um, I think like uh barefoot Contessa and maybe Giada and, you know, Tyler Florence or whatever. And in the middle, you know, so you've got like in a garden like cooking these amazing like fringe inspired meals like so much is from scratch and you know she's in the hamptons and she's going out and getting this amazingly fresh food and everything and then on the next show it's like here's a box of you know um cake mix and we're mixing that with this tub of frosting and then some canned corn because you know whatever i mean the- Crazy. <laughs> it was like the most hideous stuff
1: but people watch that and i think you know i think there's a lot of busy moms out there, for yeah. example, you know, our yes. society is such that we all have to work for a living and right. it's so hard to feed your family, you know, financially it can be expensive doing a, a whole, whole foods, healthy lifestyle, but I'm seeing a lot. Now I don't shop at Walmart, so I must say that I do not know this as a matter of fact, but some friends of mine are saying that Walmart is starting to carry more and more organic produce and their prices are pretty reasonable. So as to the quality of their organic produce, if it says USDA organic, it, it is supposed to be within certain realms of quality. You know, so there are ways, I think, of cutting down the budget, so to speak, to uh, to be able to feed your family better.
0: Right, right. Even without, you know, it being pastured and organic and, and this and that, I mean, there's definitely levels of quality. And I think that, you know, if somebody is doing the absolute best that they can do and, afford, and what they can afford – it doesn't matter if it's just a, a off the shelf you know store or not off the shelf but out of the freezer store bought chicken um, you know, vegetables, even if they're not organic. I mean, let's try to do organic if we can. If not, you know, if that's absolutely you cannot afford it and there's no room in the budget, you can still make a huge difference by roasting a whole chicken with some carrots and potatoes. Like, that's going to do a lot more for your family and honestly for your budget than going through the drive-through.
1: Exactly. Well, and, you know, you know, do the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. Avoid the dirty 15 yeah. and you know, shop for the clean 15. And one thing that I teach in my sauerkraut class, for example, is that, you know, the brassica families are one of the, one of the types of foods that you don't have to buy organic because they don't require hardly any pesticides uh, to keep them, uh, you know, growing quite well. And so if you're going to make sauerkraut, for example, all you have to do is buy a head of cabbage. That you can generally get for 2 or $3, add some salt to it, give it some time Boom, you've just made sauerkraut, homemade sauerkraut, which is one of the best probiotics out there. You've spent minimal amounts of dollars. It's very, does not take much time to make it. I can probably make a a head of sauerkraut and jar it in less than 30 minutes. You know, if you've got a food processor, even faster. And then, you know, give yourself two weeks and boom, you've got this most amazing probiotic food that you can feed to your family at a really
0: and it's time. really pennies per serving Holy at that point yeah serving. and you're doing your body so much good so
1: you know i think i think we just have to get that information out there and and help people to understand that this type of lifestyle really is not as complicated as a lot of places make it sound
0: Right. And I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, cause we love to jam on the nutrition and we love to like talk about it and, and, you know, and delve deep and, and keep exploring. And like, you know, people get really overwhelmed when it's like, okay, it has to be organic. It has to be pastured or grass fed. It has to, you know, for the milk, it has to be a one or a two or this or that, you know, and it's like, okay, stop. It doesn't have to be that complicated. No, it's, not that complicated. <laughs> it's not that complicated. And, you know, a lot of times, I mean, for us, Like when we were changing our diet, this was six, seven years ago, I guess, maybe eight years ago. I don't know. It's been so long. But I look back at when we were changing our diet and it's like we did need to make some sacrifices in order to afford better. But it was stuff that we could do. It was stuff that we could cut out. Um, It was just making it a priority. And I think that's the biggest thing is that it has to be a priority. We have to understand how much this impacts our life and then it has to be placed above other things and so like I know working with my clients sometimes the kiddos have you know five different extracurricular activities where they really only care about one or two that's a lot that can be cut and that's a lot of money and time that can go into buying and preparing healthy food and with you know instant pots, crock pots meal planning, batch cooking, there's so many ways to make it Doable. Oh
1: my gosh, girl! Talk about this instant pot. So, I,
0: oh, I love it. I got
1: mine like two weeks
0: ago. Oh, oh I'm going
1: insane with this thing. I stuck a lamb shoulder roast, which for those of you that don't don't cook much lamb, lamb shoulder is really hard uh, to cook. It, it can be quite chewy if you don't cook it right. Stuck it frozen yeah. in the instant pot. Did sauteed some uh, onions and garlic in the bottom of the instant pot. Stuck the frozen lamb roast in there set it for an hour and a half that stuff came off the bone pull apart the best tasting roast i've ever had and it was super easy and i literally plugged it in and walked away women who have and i keep going back to women who have kids i don't have children myself but i look at these women that i work with that have kids and they're so overwhelmed they've got so much on their plate and i just feel for them because i know that life is such a struggle on a daily basis but get yourself an instant pot. Spend the money on it. I know it's an expensive kitchen item, but it will more than pay for itself in the amount of time you save. Use that, you know, within 30 minutes to an hour you can have a complete meal done for your family without slaving over the stove. Yeah. You know, these are the things that we need to look at, you know, having the the proper kitchen tools, you know, and like you said, you know, cutting things out of your budget. You know, I got rid of my my tv because I wasn't watching it very much so with that extra fifty dollars a month that I'm saving I could spend on my grass-fed meats
0: right and right.
1: you know you just kind of have to look at things from a different perspective completely what what is gonna what is gonna de-stress your life and yet make you healthier at the same time versus a stressful endeavor because if we look at it from a, if you think oh my gosh I can't make sauerkraut it's, to- it's so stressful then don't make it buy it or you know get rid of that Starbucks latte that you have every morning and choose to you know, buy a, a better quality food instead of that. Right. It, it's totally about, about looking at your lifestyle and making those changes. And you and I have both done that. And we know that we're much better off and healthier for it uh, in the long run. But it is, a, it is a big step and it's really hard to do. And making decisions like that can be very stressful for a lot of people out there
0: in the beginning it seems like it's so big and overwhelming it's like oh my gosh how am I gonna change my diet and everything I buy because especially when we're busy. We, I mean, normally we're creatures of habit anyway as humans, but when we're busy, it's even easier to fall into those habits of like, okay, this is what I buy at the store. And you go into the store and you go up and down the aisles and you know exactly what you're going to get. And you're used to the layout of the store that you go to, you know, maybe it's the traditional grocery store that doesn't carry a lot of organic or whatever. You're like, I'm not going to be able to get the food there. I'm going to have to go all these different places. And you know used to, I think, and in some places still, used to, it was the case that, like, when we started doing this, like, eight years ago, or whatever, it was, um, we had to go to all these different places, you know, the the farm that we got our raw milk was over here, and then where we got our chicken was two hours away, and then where we got the grass-fed beef was an hour away, and, and then, you know, we would have to go to Whole Foods, which was 45 minutes from where we were at that time, um, to get our organic produce, and it was, like, I felt like the whole week was around just getting buying food for the week yeah yeah and then it was like time to do it again um you know I seen- and it's not like that anymore it's not I, and I'm seeing a huge shift
1: at least in my community and hopefully you're seeing this around the country that these things are becoming more readily available and yeah. I encourage people to ask around the people that they work with to see if anyone has chickens because you can buy your eggs More often than not, from someone you work with, there are two people in my department at work alone who sell eggs. And so I get non-GMO-fed organic chickens that are completely free-range chicken eggs um, that are phenomenal. They've got the orangest yolk. They're beautiful, beautiful chicken eggs for $3.50 a dozen.
0: That's crazy. Like, we sold them for six uh, when we were in New Hampshire because, and I swear to God, sometimes we were losing money on that. We were paying people to eat our eggs but it was um, that's amazing it's it's all about tapping into your network your resources and and seeing what's available because it's going to be different in different parts of the country and you know what when I mean I've heard raw milk in some areas like somebody was telling me the other day there was one person um, that would do their goat milk I think it was Jessica she was talking about Hawaii and the guy was willing to sell it to her for $50 a gallon or something insane insane And so they had to make a lot of different choices and whatever. And it, it kind of depends on where you are on your journey. I mean, if you're if you're very sick, if your children are very sick, if you're trying to make massive um, changes, you're going to have to put a little more time and effort into it than if you're just addressing a few issues. Right. Right. You know, it really, I mean, for me, I was, like like I said, practically bedridden. I was miserable. I was in pain every moment of every day. I was willing to do whatever it took to get better, Um, and the fact that I had a glimmer of hope that food and lifestyle could make a difference blew my mind, because honestly, I'd been to so many doctors, I had taken so many prescription medicines, I'd been hospitalized, um, because they wanted to try to address my migraines, which actually made things like so much worse, Um, but I had pretty much given up hope that I was ever going to get out of this, so when I found out that food and lifestyle could make a difference. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me because it seems so brain dead simple. I, know, right? I could not believe it. Yeah. I really could oh, not believe it. Oh. And so, and it was like so fast, you guys, it was amazing. I mean, within two months, half of my symptoms, yep. like that would be like two typed pages of symptoms disappeared within six months. It's like almost nothing had ever happened. Right. And I have <laughs> had been sick for years. Yes. it's And that's crazy. It's so amazing
1: to me. And I hear clients say that all the time. And I know that with my own health, I'll be honest with you, you know, I, yes, I'm a nutritionist, but I still fought everything that my naturopath was working with me, giving up the dairy. Oh, no, you are not taking my raw milk <laughs> out of my hands. I was making my own cheese. I was doing all this great stuff. I finally gave up the dairy and it was like an aha moment for me, but it okay. took more years. So, you know, I mean, I guess, when people say, I can't do this, because I said the same thing, I can't do this, you know, the wheat was a no-brainer, but the dairy, no, I fought that, and then I also fought the coffee, and I gave it up recently, and it was like, oh, another aha moment
0: (laughs) there, body doesn't do well with this stuff. Coffee, you know, it can cross-react with, for those that are gluten-sensitive or celiac, and um and that can be a huge thing. Like people don't realize there can be it's not that case for everybody. Some people will give it up and go, Oh, it wasn't a really big deal, but um some people it's a massive shift for just something simple like that. It
1: is. And you know, and, and
0: even as a nutritionist
1: I fought it. I mean, so I can yeah. tell
0: you guys that well, Oh, we're human. We're human,
1: you know, totally. Yeah. I mean and and yeah, I do as much as I can for my body, but you know, I'm on a budget too and I have to watch where uh where my food dollars go. And I've actually started using my olives as a form of trade. And so uh, this year I'll be buying my chickens with olives.
0: Oh, so that's cool. I know.
1: Isn't that great? I'm like,
0: that's very cool. I'm just
1: so excited that I've found uh, farmers that are willing, you know, willing to do that. But, you know, there there are ways and means out there. And, um, you know, for anyone making this shift to looking at whole foods as a way of getting themselves healthy and you know, looking at doing fermented foods and any of this type of thing, go at it slowly, because if you look at it from a, an overall perspective, every little impact that you make to your health will impact you greatly and in a positive way. And so once you get started, you could slowly start incorporating more and more, you know, more and more things. So for example, what I tell my clients is this month, let's get rid of all of the be- all of the meat, that has antibiotics. So I want you to only choose grass fed. And if you can't afford to have meat five days a week, then do it three days a week, you know, and and so slowly incorporate these things and let's see how it impacts your health. And then that starts them down this journey where they go, Wow, that made such a nice impact and such a big difference that I might stick with it for much longer and then I can incorporate other things into it as well.
0: Just having a step. Exactly. Yeah, we start a lot of times with our clients with changing out the fats. So I say if you're going to buy margarine, buy butter instead, you know, or, um, you know, let's get that canola, soybean, vegetable oil, nast out of your house, any kind of Crisco, all that junk has to go. Let's bring in real butter. And you know what? It doesn't have to be organic, grass-fed, you know, raw butter. It can be butter.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: exactly. Just butter. Exactly. You know, if we can do organic, let's do organic. If we can start there, let's start there. If we can start with Kerrygold or we can start with, you know, organic pastures, uh, organic valley pasture cultured butter, let's do it. But if we can only start with the, you know, the four sticks of butter, let's do that instead of the junk. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and get the good olive oil, not the adulterated olive oil. Let's get the good olive oil in there. Let's get some avocado oil. You know, I mean, so much of this stuff now, we were talking before about it being accessible Um, and I know that you mentioned Walmart. Well, I gotta say that Costco is coming on in a huge way in the organic market. I mean, so you've got, you know, Whole Foods, of course, which, you know, a, a lot of people criticize it for being very expensive. And it absolutely can be, but there are deals to be had as well. Um, and you can be careful about how you shop there and what you buy. Um, it's a huge, amazing resource because at least you can find what you're looking for. Um, Trader Joe's, a lot of, um, People think, well, Trader Joe's, you know, um, doesn't have a lot of healthy food. And it absolutely does. Again, just like any place you got to read labels.
1: And, you know, I heard that Trader Joe's now has a grass-fed yogurt.
0: Oh, really? Okay, a
1: grass-fed yogurt. Someone uh, posted it on Facebook, I saw. And I, I don't shop Trader Joe's very much just because, for me, it's, um, I don't actually go to the grocery store much at all. I can I exactly grow much of my own food and I get all my meats from my farmers. So, Uh, but, but yeah, so I don't go there much, but I do encourage people to try that. And here in my local area, we have a store called the grocery outlet, which is a, a discounted store. Um, I think the way that I've described it to people is basically if a semi-trailer, uh, crashes on the freeway, they can't res they can't sell those products in a regular grocery store. So they resell it to one of these types of outlet places, or if something is nearing its expiration date, they will sell it at these places. I have purchased, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, here's total confession time here. I have a freezer in my basement. I purchased 60 pounds of butter at one time. Yes, the guy that checked me out thought I was nuts. 60 pounds of butter from Europe. It was European grass fed butter at this grocery outlet. They had, I don't know how they got this much in, but I went ahead and loaded up my cart with it. And just stuck it in the freezer. And I used that for, gosh, a couple of years, I think I was eating butter. Amazing. But you can find some great deals. And, you know, I'm not, wherever people are located, if they look around and try to find one of these discount type warehouse places, um, they oftentimes do have a lot of organic produce uh, and organic foods that, that you can get some really good deals on. And so, you know, I, I don't shop there very often. I'll go once a month just to see what they have and every so mm-hmm. often I'll find some good deals and just add that to whatever's in the pantry if I can. Um, so there are ways, you know, to cut down your your grocery budget for sure and and keep your family healthier. And you know, frozen vegetables too are a great resource and you've got a freezer and I you know, I think having a freezer in the basement or in the garage or, or wherever if you can have one kind of hard with with where you're living, but, you know, have an extra freezer and stock that full of frozen veggies and all sorts of things that are readily available so that you don't, you know, if you find organic veggies on sale, buy a bunch of them and put them in the freezer. Um, And then that way, you know, you're saving yourself some time and you're saving yourself some money as well. So there are lots of ways to cut down on that food budget and, you know, make it easier on your family because, If you have to start spending a lot of money to change your lifestyle, that becomes an added stressor. And we don't want to add more stress to people's lives. I think we've got plenty of that.
0: We so do. And, you know, stress is um, obviously detrimental to our health, too. So we don't want to go too far, too fast, and stress everybody out and freak out. Like, again, like, just keep it simple. Just think about, you know, what your great-great-grandmother would have recognized as food. Just keep it real, you know up level your sources as you can Um, you know and absolutely like I I totally agree with what you're saying about the freezers and on the farm we had five freezers so uh, you know we had our um, our kitchen fridge freezer but then we had five freezers and um, because we had you know the animals we had all the bulk stuff that we would buy like when I Um, when we butchered our pigs, I had 60 pounds, um, of wonderful, beautiful, organic, soy free, all this loveliness, um, of, of pork fat to render down into lard. I think I got like 12 gallons of lard. It was insane. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. Um, our pigs were so cool and they had eaten, um, they had eaten 500, um, gallons of yogurt. Wow. Of organic yogurt during their yeah growing season and so 500 gallons pigs eat a lot of food you guys yeah. and um so yeah it was beautiful snow white fat and we got to render it down into lard and okay. it was just amazing so it absolutely we needed all that room and, and on real food road trip in our big motor home you know we do have a residential size fridge freezer which is lovely um but that's i only have the one and so I had to get a little creative yeah, for sure, um, and just you know make sure that I'm on top of our supply, because you know I actually rely on my freezer a lot, um you know having the frozen vegetables, having um you know cooked shredded frozen meats, or anything like that, you know, stocking up on grass fed ground beef when I find a good farm or find a good price, or you know every once in a while whole Foods they'll do their um you know, Friday deals and it'll be, you know, four ninety nine a pound or something like that. And it's usually from one of their local grass-fed farms. And so I've stocked up on that before. So I use my freezer a lot. And so having just the one, um, I've had to be really creative um, about what I keep on hand and making sure I have the variety and, and that as I use something that I replenish it back. So... It's really just about a different way of kitchen management, but um, it's absolutely doable, and, you know, I mean, we we didn't have any major secret, you know, we're not super special, we didn't, you know, have it all figured out, like, it's been a journey as well, for me and Matt, and Tina, I know for you, it's been a journey. Mm-hmm. And you're constantly evolving. And like you said, we're human. So there's still things that we're learning and things that we're um, upgrading and whatever. And sometimes you can't get the the very top quality that you'd like to get or you can't do it in that amount that you'd like to get. But you're still eating real food. Exactly. The huge, huge majority of the time. Like people talk about the 80-20 rule. I don't super love the 80-20 rule because I think – the 20% has to be pretty darn good if you're going to talk about 80-20. But, you know, I kind of like 90-10 a little bit more, and that 10 still being very clean.
1: And and one thing that we didn't really talk about that I'm a huge proponent for is clean water.
0: Uh, Yeah. You
1: know, and and I use a burpee filter in my home. I live in Portland, Oregon, where we do not have fluoride in our water, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, But I also use a Berkey filter and I filter all my water through that for the main reason that I don't know how many people are dumping their drugs down the water system, uh, down the sewer system and how much of that is being recycled. And,
0: you know, I don't know
1: what is coming into from the rainwater. I don't know what toxins are on our earth that's coming in through the rainwater. So I'm, I'm huge. uh, I'm just really concerned about filtering my water as well. And then of course for all my ferments, Believe it or not I drive out to uh, we're very fortunate here off of the highway 26 out toward the coast about 41 miles away from where I live is a uh, natural spring beautiful and every month I go out and I get about 30 gallons I you know, people probably look at me crazy because in the back seat of my car, I've got all these five-gallon full water strapped in with their seatbelts on, you know.
0: <laughs> well, and that's cool. That's so great to be able to find the natural spring. And I think there's a website. Is it findaspring.com? Yes, and they're yeah.
1: everywhere in this country. And I encourage people, once you start drinking this stuff, you know, people say, well, what's the difference between spring water? Well, first of all, it doesn't have toxins from a lot of the municipalities actually people dump water in, and they go through a water treatment plant. So a lot of the sewage water is recycled and it's treated. But what you don't realize is that if people are dumping drugs down this, some of the drug, some of the water actually has, uh, you know, antidepressants in it and that type of thing. If you were actually to test it significantly. Uh, at the proper testing facilities, they would show traces of these different types of drugs. You know, like And
0: remember, guys, we're not talking about like people like narcotics, yeah. like illegal, like cocaine and stuff. We're talking about pharmaceutical drugs <laughs> that people are taking or that have expired in the medicine cabinet. And rather than properly disposing of it, they're flushing it down the toilet. Right.
1: And then those uh, water treatment facilities actually you know, they do filter stuff out, but the drugs and the chemicals in there do not get filtered out. And so I think the spring water is a a great way to go. Now for my ferments, I use the spring water just because I want to have a quality product. And so that's, you know, my kombucha, I will only make it with spring water. That's just a rule at my house. It does not have anything in it. Um, You know, so that's one thing that I I really want to say to people is that if, if you can impact your health One of the key things is really know the water quality that you're getting. And, of course, don't buy bottled water in plastic bottles because, you know, the BPA leaches into that plastic. You don't know if the bottled water was sitting in a hot warehouse. And, you know, now you've just poured plastic phthalates and toxic plastic uh, plasticizers into your body. And those, believe it or not, get stored into your fat uh, in our body, and they can continually – Toxify you at the same time. And so water is very, very important. You always want to drink uh, good, healthy water. And and that's something that I make an effort to, uh, to drink. I've invested in my Berkey filter. uh, And I do, you know, it's an investment to drive out to the coast every month and and pick up fresh water. But that's something that I choose to do for my health. And I think it has made a huge, a huge difference. And of course, drinking a good quality amount of water (laughs) society where people reach for the Mountain Dew instead of the water. And, uh, you know, that's a huge way to impact your health is just to use water over juice, over coffee, over, you know, soda drinks. So um,
0: it's it's so important. And, you know, we love our Berkey too. I mean, absolutely. Like I would never be without one. I just absolutely love it. And, um, you know, what's great is that If you don't know what we're talking about with a Berkey, it's a water filter. It's a countertop water filter. It doesn't require any plumbing or any electricity. It's a gravity-fed filter. So what you do is you pour water, like from your tap, into the top component um, and it sits there and it goes through the filters and it drips into the bottom and then there's a spigot um, where you can pour it out into your cup and it's filtered and the Berkey filter is so amazing because I mean I think they've done the test where they put the red dye in and um, and the water comes out clear like it, it pulls out so much stuff and um, you could even take I mean I love it for kind of a survivalist thing right like um, you could take lake water and like put it through there in an emergency and have it be drinkable. A lot of people would say they would put iodine or whatever in it as well up at the top and then let that, you know, go through. But, um, Absolutely. Love it, love it, love it. And they have different filters, so you can just do the straight filter if you are lucky enough not to have fluoridated water. Um, but if they have added fluoride to the water, which many cities still do this, um, you can get the fluoride filters, and that will take that out. And I believe it also does arsenic, fluoride and arsenic, um, which was great when we had well water. Um, and our well water was very clean in um, New Hampshire. We were very, very picky about where we purchased our farm I actually looked at because um, I'm crazy so I looked at the water you know tables and I looked at like the streams and I looked at any like paper mills because paper mills produce a ton of pollution for the water and I looked at superfund sites um to see what would be draining into where our farm was and I made sure that we were like upstream basically from all of that um And, of course, it wasn't perfect, but, you know, we were very lucky to have very clean water. But, you know what, I still ran it through the Berkey just because. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I I keep reading about all this stuff. I live in an earthquake-prone zone. And, uh, you know, should anything ever happen to, uh, you know, here, and I was in an emergent situation, I could certainly – uh, take the rainwater off my roof and run it through my Berkey, you know, and yeah, I would yeah. still have water. So that's, you know, it's kind of something to think about. And I know that with a lot of the fracking that's happening on in the Midwest right now, lots of earthquakes happening there. So I think right, a Berkey right. is just a great tool to have on hand because, uh, you know, water is life. If you don't have water, you can't really
0: survive. On a very practical level, like for us, like we, we bought our Berkey when we lived in Texas and, you know, we were looking at that time at installing a whole house system or what we were going to do, but we kind of had this inkling that we were going to be moving and, you know, we had done the thing before of buying in water and, um, you know, we had the, The big glass, or not glass, um, the big five-gallon jugs that would get delivered, like sparklets or one of those kind of things, you know, before we really understood about all the plastics. And so we had kind of gone through that, and then we were going to do the um, whole house, and I had done a reverse osmosis. And a lot of people think reverse osmosis is fantastic, and I actually found that it was causing mineral deficiencies. In me, um, and I was just more and more and more thirsty, um, you know, you can remedy that by putting a little bit of um, unrefined sea salt in your water and, and a little squeeze of lemon juice as well, but... um but I was looking for something that we could move with us. And I knew we were going to be in Pennsylvania for a short time while looking for a place in Connecticut. I knew that we would be in Connecticut for at that time. I kind of thought we'd be there for 18 months. We ended up being a little over two years, but um, and then we moved to New Hampshire. So having all these different moves ahead of us, I thought, you know, a whole house system is not going to be a great investment because I can't take it with me right. with the Berkey. I could take it with me. And when we were, staying with family in Pennsylvania, I was able to just put it over um, in the corner of the dining room. I didn't have to tie into their electricity. I didn't have to tie into their plumbing. It was no muss, no fuss over in the corner. We filled it up with water and we had, you know, clean filtered water to drink. So it was really, really handy and like I said, I wouldn't ever be without one if I could help it because I just love my Berkey. And, you know, when we were picking out our motorhome and looking at the different um, floor plans, it was like, okay, where's the Berkey gonna go? <laughs> yeah, I know it has to have a place to go. Exactly. No,
1: I'm 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 known for uh, taking my Berkey with me when I go on vacation. So,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Tina, thank you so much for being here today. This has been so fun and I've learned so much. And so thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you for having me. It's great chatting with you again. And uh, we'll chat later so I can get your address for those
0: olives. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait. (laughs) All right. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us today, and please remember to leave us an iTunes review. Also, head over to our website at realfoodwholehealth.com and enter your email to receive free goodies, discounts, updates, and more. See you next time on the Real Food Whole Health Podcast.